Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast. And I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi. And alongside me, as always, is... Paul Gilliary. Paul, here we are in September. September of 2021. We've gotten through 10 months. How do you feel? I feel the autumn air is coming, I hope, soon. It was a boiler today. The uh, the pumpkin spice is tingling the nostrils. Yeah, I'm like I'm having to light candles around here to make me feel seasonal. I'm ready. I'm ready to turn the page, man. Hey, the that, little guy put on long sleeve shirt tonight. His that's choice. Fantastic. I like it's it. It's all happening here. It, I, like I mean, it. It, it was 95 degrees today in the valley. Yeah, exactly. So you know, and, and fall. The, the, the long, I'm sure the long sleeve shirt can be attributed to the uh, manufactured uh, cool air conditioning environment that you oh, produced. Man. In your own. Shout out to Maytag, or uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know who the hell our, our AC provider is. Know. So free advertising to Maytag. Um, welcome everyone to September, and uh, we are going to talk today, and I think the next couple of weeks about. An album, an album that, we, that was released in August. Yes. And, and we, you know, <laughs> 10, 10 is a very important album for many, many reasons. But guess what also is a very important album and gets overshadowed by the fact that it shares the same birthday as 10, and that's No Code. And they're almost polar opposites in a lot of ways uh, in the sound, in the approach, in the marketing, in the tour. Did, so, did, did you just give away the whole month? No. All right. <laughs> So we're going to talk a little bit about that album. Uh, and in particular, in this episode, perhaps the drummer will be of focus. But first, uh, I would implore you to uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the channel, to the show. Feed the algorithm. There you go. And uh, hop on the social media channels, state of love and trust underscore pod on Instagram, S-O-L-A-T underscore pod on Twitter. We are on Facebook as well. Lots of good conversations there. Um, yeah, that would be lovely. And if you write a review, we will read it on this show and shout you out. And I don't care if it's negative. No. In fact, I might yell that name. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> That's how aggressive we can be. Anyways, like I said, this episode is going to focus in, focus in or focus on, focus on um, our friend Jack Irons. And we will also give our over-under decisions for no code. Paul, over-under for 10 was hard. Uh, you know, it was. That, that, was a, that was an interesting challenge that I thought we both went into very hesitant. I say that because we saw the firing squads lining up. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel not that we emerged unscathed, but I feel like we were able to, uh, we had some fun with that album in ways that I hope left some folks listening, feeling, you know, Hey, these guys put together some thought provoking content around an album that I, 
I hadn't heard much conversation sounding very different these days. I don't know. I, I tried. I'm sure I, I failed. But <laughs> I really felt like the knight from uh, Monty Python. I had no mm-hmm. limbs, but I was feeling like it was tis but a scratch. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Well, let's talk about our guy. Um, this, you know, when we were thinking about how we would talk about Jack Irons, and this isn't new territory for other shows or or articles or publications. But, you know, we thought with moving from 10 to no code, it felt important to talk about maybe the guy who I would say is unique to that experience. Mm -hmm. And to that point, there are a lot of bridges to Jack Irons beyond just the album, no code. Of course, of course there is. And so let's talk about Jack in, in a way that's very appreciative. Let's pick out some of his best moments, some things that are the most um, influential and significant to the Pearl Jam history. They could be songs. They could be conversations. They could be moments in time, but Jack has a history with this band. Um, and we, we, we did our, our favorite drummer episode many, many moons ago. I'm not going to ruin it for you if you're going to go back and listen to it. And uh, Jack's an interesting guy. Paul, I'm going to start off here with a moment that I think is pretty obvious. And I call it the handoff. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a bunch of songs written in the aftermath of Mother Love Bone by Jeff and Stone. They were drummed on by one Matt Cameron. And there was a man named Jack Irons who was friends with these guys. He, he knew them from the, from the circles, the, the music circles, and said, I've got a guy. I've got a guy in San Diego. I play basketball with him. I've known him from the local scene. You know, I've, I saw him when I was working with Joe Strummer in San Diego. He's a good guy. Go ahead and send a tape to me. I'll, I'll give it to him. He's, he's a good singer. Maybe you can work with him. We all know the story from there. Talk to me about, about this moment and how it's the first of many times that Jack has woven himself into the fabric of Pearl Jam. Well, I think with this particular moment, what's interesting is it, it took place here, here in L.A. Mm. You know, uh, Jack, as far as his recollection goes, he met Stone and Jeff at a hotel here in L.A. And uh, Stone and Jeff were, were still reeling from uh, Andy Wood's passing and, and, and trying to find a way to, to reboot and told Jack, Hey, we're starting a new band and they wanted him to play, you know, and, and Jack is on record as saying he wasn't ready to move to Seattle. He didn't want to start a new life there at the time. He had some touring obligations and it just, you know, I think he was playing with a, a band called uh, red cross, I think R E D D K R O S S. Was he really? Uh, yeah. Was he, was with, he know, with, um, what, what year was this? 90? Oh God, yeah, was something it not, like that. Yeah. I thought it was 1990. I, it was 1990. And uh, what was fascinating it? about that, if you think about the, the, the term no code, right? It's the medical mm-hmm. directive for declining treatment when somebody's not breathing, doesn't have a heartbeat. Anyway, so it's Red Cross. And random tangent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, point is, is Jack, <clears throat> he's got this, uh, this, this opportunity here because the guy's basically given this demo 
And they, as you mentioned, they said, just pass it on to, to any singers you might know. And Jack had heard Eddie sing. I, I don't know if it was with Bad Radio or whatnot, but he, he does remember hearing Eddie sing in a band in San Diego one time. It was just one time. I'm assuming it was with Bad Radio. And he thought, this guy's got a killer voice. And so he figured, you know what? I'm going to pass this, this cassette on to, uh, to Eddie. So that's the first, the first go round. Um, and in, I was, you know, I was reading a little bit through Jack's bio today to kind of brush up on, on him. He, he was all over the place and he, mm. oh, let's back up a little bit. And, yeah. He yeah. was, he was an LA native, um, went to junior high school and senior high school with, uh, I believe, um, a gentleman by the name of last name of Slovak, I want to say. And they were in a couple different bands together. Uh, he met a flea who eventually obviously was in the peppers in at Fairfax high school in Los Angeles. Um, and eventually they found themselves, uh, kind of bopping in between a couple different bands. The peppers at the time were called something different. Um, and eventually and they were like a side band to him, but he was in and around that a lot. He, he did the, the, um, the demo tracks for them came back around, uh, to record their, uh, I guess, third album, which was off the top of my head. Oh my God. Why am I blanking? Um, the uplift mofo party, that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was something that happened around those times in the mid to late eighties. Um, a buddy of his, one of his bandmates uh, died of a heroin overdose and it put him in a depression for a long time. Apparently to the, to this day, he still struggled with that, with that depression from that, um, which I want to say probably uh, influenced his decisions um, regarding Pearl Jam in the future. Uh but found himself bouncing in and out of those guys. And if it wasn't for meeting those guys, they don't, they don't get together. They don't meet, or he doesn't meet stone and Jeff in LA. And, or we, we assume that he doesn't, and he doesn't hand off the tape. He also doesn't ask them to open for, uh, for the peppers when they actually have as Mookie Blaylock and they had that 91 tour. You know, as they've they have this record that's coming out, they are touring in support of the Peppers. There's an infamous show up by your neck of the woods, the Cow Palace, on New Year's mm-hmm. Eve. Yeah, uh, it's wild to think how incestual that that relationship was back in the day between a whole bunch of those guys. I mean, wasn't the story? And, I, and I'm remembering from Ronan's book, um, "Not for You," which is a phenomenal read if you haven't read it already. Um, Ed going off with Jack on like desert trips and like being pretty decent buddies with him for a while. And Jack kind of talking about, Hey, you should really talk to these guys, blah, 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 blah. To think like that, that, that was the conduit that he was the conduit to this from the very beginning. I don't think we talk about it enough. Do we, or am I overstating it? I don't know. I think um, Matt's been with the band for so long now. And uh, Dave has such a let, left such an indelible impression on, on so mm. many iconic tracks that you know we had Jack for No Code. We had Jack on the tour for No Code. He recorded Yield, did not tour for Yield. So 
I, I, I'm hesitant to say that his time with the band was fleeting because it actually spans a, a good couple of years. It but does, it, but, it, and I'm not saying that his time with the band was so was as influential as somebody else, but the band may not exist without him. Right. In exactly. his relationships. Indeed. And, and I think that in terms of, you know, three major impactful moments or events that we could point to for Jack Irons and his relationship with Pearl Jam, this has to be chief among them. Just the handoff, as you said, it, it can't be overstated uh, just because the band wouldn't exist without that handoff. Uh, But, but I also think that, you know, some Eddie said something later when he, when, when uh, Jack joined them in 1994, which by the way, was Jack phoning them and saying, Mm. Hey, you know what? I I know you guys have an opening, uh, you know, you guys open to, to me, me playing with you. And Ed at one point said, this should have been the band from the beginning. And, and I think it goes back to this relationship that Eddie had with Jack and, and the relationship that the band has with him. And I feel that, uh, Jack has been asked in the past, you know, do you wish you had joined the band initially? And he said, no, actually, I, I feel like it, that joining them in the beginning, they were just way too explosive, too big. I, I think it would have been just too much for me at that point in my life. Um, it was better for him to, to join Pearl Jam later in their career. So I think that he, he literally came in at a point in the band's history where he could, he could organically fit, but also um, he came in at a point in time where that's what he was looking for. So it was, the, it was this perfect kind of mutual marriage of needs. Mm. And, and, and the two informed each other in ways that allowed I think what what no code and yield would ultimately ultimately become to blossom to fruition because those two albums have largely become in many ways fan favorites and at least amongst the the, the fan base that we have today and I think what's what's interesting is is his connection to those two albums I don't think that's a coincidence so when Eddie says this should have always been the band if you love that no code yield era it, it's not a surprise to me that Jack Irons was a part of that so what would you say then would be one one of your i guess it could be chronological but it doesn't have to be uh moments for jack well the the, the first one like you would be the handoff sure. i think um the second one would in turn if in, if i had to thank jack for for three things you know i yeah. think the second thing I, I would thank him for is uh, is keeping the band together yeah um, you know it's it's well-documented that this was a turbulent time in the band's history and Jack played a very influential role in making sure that the band remained a band. And, and, but I don't think it was so much him coming in with that being a mission as much as it was Jack just being the influence the, the calming force of stability that he is within the framework of Pearl Jam. And I think that any other drummer at that point in time, they wouldn't be here today. So I, I in a lot of ways, uh, I'm, extremely grateful limitlessly <laughs> grateful to, to Jack Irons and his role in the band's history because his ability to provide that perspective of maturity um, of experience and the grounded and rooted nature of not getting lost in the agendas in the statements in 
the um, identity of what it means to be rock stars and, and all that jazz. There, there was something about Jack Irons that they needed at that point in time, but there was also something about Pearl Jam that, that Jack Irons needed at that time as well. And I think that that's what made the recording of these two albums and, and quite frankly, the tour from 90, 96, so special. So, What is it about the timing with him? Because he's, he seems to find um, himself near the band when they needed him the most. And this is now twice now. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, obviously, we're jumping around the timeline. But we've pulled two moments here that are incredibly important that he made himself available in some way to help these guys. One, to find their singer, and two, to essentially save the band um, and allow them to, or I would say even encourage them to walk a different path, um, musically speaking, which would allow them to remain. You know, it's, it's interesting the timing that he had and um, the fortuitous timing that he had to make, I mean, he was in multiple bands. He was in obviously the peppers, like I said, 11 was a band that he was in. Um, but he would come in and out of those things for the guys. What, why do you, you know, it's, it's hard to speculate cause we don't know the guy, but like, what does it say for a guy like this to be available or, or to be willing to put things aside um, for, I mean, friends of his, but like, they're not, they don't seem that I don't close. think he put anything aside for them. I think Jack Irons, I mean, pardon the pun, I think he marches to the beat of his own drum. And uh, I, I think that he did what was right for him. I, I, you know what I mean? He passed on playing with them in the early 90s. So this is what you're saying. It, it, it wasn't. It, was. yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't right for him. And, <clears> and, and when, it, when he felt like it was right and the opportunity presented himself, he reached out to the band in 94 and said, hey, I'd love to play with you guys. Um, I think he leads by example. You know, when they recorded Mirrorball in 95, mm. uh, Neil Young said Jack was incredible, unbelievable, that he played his ass off every take, every session. And I think that that admiration that Neil Young, who was a hero in many ways to, to almost all the members of the band, especially Eddie, for, for Neil Young to, to be so full of praise an admiration of Jack Irons only further, I think, fueled Eddie's desire and, and belief that Jack Irons was and always will be, in his mind, at, at least at that point in time, the drummer that they needed. Uh, but it wasn't because he was saying, I need you or, you know, I sent something's wrong, let me come help. It was just him wanting to play. I mean, you know, they, the folks have asked him, you know, what was it like playing during those no code in yield years? And he's on record as saying it was fun that they had a great time playing together. He was happy to have had those years. So while we look back at that era and view it as this chaotic, tumultuous time that the band, you know, they were hanging by a thread. Here's Jack Irons looking back saying it was a blast. So I, I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, he just was able to bring a perspective that, that nobody else could. And that was the missing perspective that the band needed at that time. Almost like the almost like the calming influence sort mm -hmm. of, you know, they were so frantic. Well, um, they were losing themselves. You know, they yeah, went that's from, what I'm saying. It, we want to play to then five yeah. against one. 
you know, and then it just, it just became this process of getting lost until Jack kind of helped them understand, like, just don't lose yourself in this, yeah. you know? And then uh, you know, I mentioned in our conversation well, with Stick, he, they, they graduated from five against one to we're all one, which yeah, I, mean, I think has defined the band ever since. It, absolutely. And then you talk about, um, but Jack is the linchpin for that transition. And I think, I think Jack having gone through, some similar issues as stone and Jeff, both losing somebody close to them in bands they played in to a heroin problem and dying. I think there was that camaraderie, that that brotherhood of like, we were playing music. We were really together. We were bonded and someone close to me passes on from this. Um, we thought we were going somewhere. I had to move on and find another path in a different band or whatever. And I'm still reeling from it. I think they, they felt that. They think they, they knew him beforehand and knew that he was a solid guy. But to have him come back, and he, he's a few years older than the guys. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to say a fatherly way, but everything that I've read seems to think that he was the one that came in, scooped him up, patted him on the back, said, hey, you guys can do this. Follow my lead to your point. And express yourselves in the way that you want to express yourselves and, and it allowed them to do that because otherwise I think they were, I don't want to say confused, but maybe unsure of where to go next. Well, there, there is that, but I mean, this brings me to my, to my third reason of gratitude uh, to Jack Irons. And, and it's, it's rooted in his style. Uh, mm. when I, when I think about this, this tribal drum, this eclectic sound of his drums that, that we get on tracks, like who you are and, and in my tree. And we hadn't heard that type of percussion from Pearl Jam in the past. It sounded like world music to me when I first heard the album, I'll never forget opening up the, the cellophane and popping that thing in and, and listening to it and thinking, what is the sound? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's funny because he, he, he will say that he thinks it's really difficult for his drumming style, his drum sound, his music to fit with, with a song, especially a rock song. And uh, he always felt that Pearl Jam was very accommodating, cooperative, supportive. And, and they, they really tried to work a lot of the, the things that moved Jack into their music. And, and what I find interesting about that was, was Eddie was quoted as saying at the time that we realized we had an opportunity to experiment, which I find fascinating to me because some would argue that the prior album was nothing but experimentation on a yeah. lot of levels. Yeah. Um, but th- it was different, though. That, that type of experimentation that we saw in Vitology, I thought, was more on the um, peripheral, the, the, the superficial level. That you know, when you think about it, it was still the, the the rock that we got on Vitology was not dramatically different than the rock that we got through Ten and Verses. To me, I, I mean, yes, there are differences. Don't get me wrong, but it's not Habit, it's not Lucan, it's not the garage rock sound, the eclectic tribal sound. So, I mean, it, there's just so much happening in No Code that I feel that's where, where they, they truly re- realized as Ed said that there, there was an opportunity to experiment. It's because they had a drummer that they weren't going to try and fit a square peg into a circle hole. So they, they just decided to go in the direction of the, <laughs> of the shape that is Jack Irons and, and his style. And, 
And it really helped lead the band in a direction that I've always found very, very fascinating. And I think it, it created a ripple effect that exists to this day. Well, that you set me up perfectly because my third note here, and, and my second note was that he was the substitute. And, and by that, I mean, he was, he was the guy that held them together from 94, 98. He, he was able mm-hmm. to kind of allow them to weather the storm. Um, but, but the third thing that I would say is exactly what you just got me to, which is, uh, Musically speaking, you are not seeing binaural riot act gigaton in the way that we have them um, without his presence in the band and opening them up to those ideas. I think that they were always with, with their influences and especially Jeff, because he has some weird ass influences, but um, I don't think they would have maybe dared to go that way. And I think or, you know, or as, seen or seen going that way as opportunity rather right. than something to be afraid of or to feel anxious about. Yeah. You know, in the headspace that they were in 94, 95 and to say, Hey, we do like this style of music, but like, you know, because there was that whole pulling away from, away from popularity and the, and the spotlight um, and, and I think Vitalogy was kind of them starting to go that way, but to go the way of no code is, is much farther turn. And they take some balls to do that, especially at what were they 30, 28, whatever it was um, at the time of their career on top of taking on Ticketmaster and just not playing normal places or at all, because 95, as we've talked about before and 96 is just a very strange touring time. And I think we'll talk about that maybe another episode. Um, but to, to have that in the back of your mind and say, Hey, you know what? I think I'd like to go a different way, but then be, to be encouraged by the stylings of Jack who has come in and, and given you some confidence, you're not going to get binaural in that kind of recording process. You're not going to get riot acting going really far down that rabbit hole. You're not going to get gigaton and, and gigaton is the ultimate expression of, Let's just fucking try everything and we'll just mash it in here. And if it works great, and if not, we'll strip it out. And of course, you know, with technology, that's a lot easier said than done. And Josh was more than happy to try those things. But we don't see the band as we do without his, without the confidence he has in trying something different and letting those guys push themselves to a degree that I think was always in them because of their influences. I mean, you think about Pink Floyd and the who and some of the weirder shit that those bands did. And I'm sure it was always in them, but you know, or I shouldn't say, you know, you probably feel coming from verses and coming from better man and corduroy and 10, obviously that it's not going to necessarily work commercially, but say, but to, to have the confidence in yourself to say, fuck it, we're going to do it anyways, because we want to do this. Yeah. I wonder that that's, I'm not gonna say it's as important as helping to start the band, but if he doesn't do that, I, do we even get another couple of more albums? They might fizzle uh, out and just keep yeah. popping out, you know, what <laughs> the same old, same old. Uh, no, they would have just called it. They would have gone in separate directions. I, 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 they don't, they're not built that way. They're not, they, they can't stay in the construct of a band that has obligations to tour, to produce albums that to, to, to make something that's uninspired, to phone it in and, and just put, put a formula together. Um, and we, we wouldn't have them anymore. Seven album contract with Sony. 
that was the deal that they had. And I, that's got, I feel so daunting at the beginning. When you sign a deal, you're like, Oh fuck. Yeah, this is great. I got this massive record deal. I can put out records for, it feels like forever. But when you're at the point where you are as a band in 94, where you're like, I don't like where I'm at. The band has all this tension. And yet I have to somehow I'm I'm on the hook for five more albums. Like what this are four more albums. What am I going to do with this? That's got to weigh on you as well. I mean, there is business on top of the creative that's weighing on you to come up with something. And I think it just, it's very under underappreciated how much Jack's influence on them to find another Avenue to allow themselves to, to be themselves is. I don't know that people talk about this enough because they kind of just think about the style of drumming and they go, okay, well, Dave was the banger and and Jack was weird. And then Matt was kind of like the next guy up and he kind of filled the gap and he's been a great drummer for 22 years, whatever the hell it's beyond style. Jack, Jack is a beyond style kind of guy. Well, he's also like this insane, just session professional. I mean, you know, Brendan O'Brien called him a session drumming assassin. You know, he said everybody was on their best musical behavior around him. That there was something that was really fascinating about his influence in, in the recording studio. And uh, I think uh, you, when, you, when you take into account the impact that Jack Hirons had on the band in not that many years as four. a band member. But, Barely four, by the way. Not three right. three, like three mean, and a half, really. But really, you can catalog his influence all the way back to 1990 and, yeah. and you know, up, up until today, I would imagine. So it's it, it's really hard to understate, or sorry, to overstate not just his influence, but uh, his importance to the band. So, Do you think it was a little weird that he was not included in the uh, Hall of Fame ceremony? Ah, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that piece is hard because there was a big push for Dave. Obviously Dave was not included. Dave Cruz. I know. I I think think Jack never, I think Jack never considered himself to be, I, I, I feel like he always felt like Pearl Jam was Pearl Jam. And he, you know, he He was was, just sitting in, he sat in for, for, yeah. for a period when it was right for him and yeah. they had an opening. And then when it wasn't right for him anymore, I mean, he had carpal tunnel Yeah, and, and you know, that there's that, that Australia tour, he was asking Dave Grohl to step in a couple of times. Dave was out there on vacation with his girlfriend and, and he was, you know, saying, dude, my, my wrists are killing me. <laughs> okay. Could you, you mind stepping in for a few? I mean, it, it was just, he was winding down, you know? So, I mean, it just, yeah. I, I think he, he just saw a chance to kind of, you know, get it going one more time with a, a group of guys that he liked and trusted and always thought it'd be cool to play with. So I, I think Jack would probably be the first person to tell you that he himself probably didn't feel it was appropriate for him to be up there for that. But yeah, I mean, he didn't really have too many uh, writing credits. Um, Who you are in my tree, red mosquito all night, happy when I'm crying, red dot, the whale song. I mean, that's it. Um, and I would say only like those first two, three were really of any, um, real significance. So, I mean, it's not like you might say from a songwriting perspective or a musical perspective, oh, he didn't really do a whole lot. He just kind of, he was a drummer. Like people joke about how bass players and drummers are so like replaceable. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I, I mean, I get that joke, but at the same time, it's like, I don't, you here. My, my biggest thing with Jack is that what his importance to the band, his significance to the legacy of Pearl Jam is not measurable by songs. It is measurable by the fact that he essentially put the band together and then saved the band when they were crumbling into themselves. And I don't know that. I, I think a lot of Pearl Jam hardcore fans do understand this, but how often do we really talk about Jack in this way and really shine a spotlight on the little that he did, but how important that it was, you know what I mean? For sure. It's, it, 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 it's incredibly important. And I think that there's something very fulfilling about sitting down and saying, you know what, I'm just going to go live in that no code mirror ball um, yield space for a bit. And I think, I think mirror ball was incredibly important. I, we, we, we will do, and I know that eventually Neil is going to put out the remastered version of mirror ball. He's been talking about it for a year and a half now. Eventually when we get that, I think we should, we should talk about mirror ball because that was the bridge. You know, that was the first recording session after Foxy Mop, of course, I can't not mention that, of course, um, that the guys had with Jack. And, you know, they had, obviously, just to put things in perspective, of course, the first thing they did was Foxy Mop. And then they, as they finished that, they did Bridge School. And that was the unofficial opening of Jack Irons era. And then, of course, as we talked about before, the two shows in Washington, D.C. in January of the next year was the official unveiling of him. And then eventually they get to recording with Neil Young. And I think... To your point, that session, because how much Ed revered Neil and the, how much the guys kind of at that point certainly were looking to Ed as the band leader, saw that dynamic. And, and, it, and when Neil sees Jack, as you said, as the consummate professional in the studio, they were, uh, there had to be something happening there that really solidified something amongst the band because you get two great tracks uh, on the cutting room floor that became Merkin Ball. You get no code and the band felt a little bit more cohesive. Obviously there's the whole Jeff thing that we'll get to another episode, I think. Sure. Um, and then eventually the, the, it becomes, you get the, you get the yield sessions, which were, were bearing the fruit of, I think that was the final, I think, I think the whole 95 to 96 through no code was figuring shit out. And then mm. yield was the, we're finally bearing fruit of this process emotionally intellectually we're, we're finally a band again and at, with the guys are on record as saying how much more fun that record was to make and then you know jack does australia and hawaii and says okay i'll see you guys later <laughs> um and rides off into the sunset and we get matt cameron uh, unofficially for about six months until he's official and then here we are today but um a big thank you to jack irons uh Indeed. Not that Hell he, of a drummer, by the way. <laughs> he is, and, and not that he needs Incredible us to say that, drummer. but uh, he. Uh, no one can bash a trash can lid like Jack Irons. <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say, um, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but if you can, if you go on YouTube and find the uh, Berlin, Germany, uh, 1996 show on YouTube, it, it's a fun watch because. Uh, it's one of the few examples we'll get of Jack Irons and video bashing the shit out of those drums um, with Pearl Jam at that time. And it's a real treat. Uh, but before we get there, not to jump too far ahead, we've got to do over under. I mentioned it before. 
Over under, we did 10 just recently. We usually spray these out pretty good, but I wanted to get in no code now because it's worth celebrating. And Paul, I got in my clear vinyl. It's here in the house. Oh. It's actually like a mint green color. Hmm. It's very strange, but it's lovely. I got a Sinatra album that has uh, that, really? that kind of, yeah, it's got that mint green. It's not clear though. Yeah, so. I don't know why they called it clear because it's not clear. It's like a mint green, but it's in the house. Okay. Much Was like it worth Pop- it? Mu- yes. All right. Much like Papa John's it's in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, so here we are, over under. Paul, would you like to start with your over on, with your overrated pick? Uh, sure. I'm going to go hail, hail. <laughs> hail, hail. Hit me with it. Yeah, you know, man, it's it, it's not a bad song at all. It's a, it, it's a great song. I just remember listening to Sometimes and thinking, what a fascinating way to open an album. It was different. Um, I know we're not talking about sometimes right now, but it no, it, we're not. It it led me into thinking that that I was on a ride going somewhere, and then Hail Hail just comes out of nowhere, which I've always appreciated. But it's a great one too. It is a great one too. But that, that it, it just that garage rock sound. I, I feel that it, it's it's not Pearl Jam at their best. I think it's Pearl Jam, drunk having a ball. You know, or, 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 or pissed drunk and having a ball. I don't know. But it's not Pearl Jam at their best to me. People love and the songs. Tell me why it's overrated. I think Hail Hail musically is a standout track. Uh, this ode to, to relationships and, and, and this this critical analysis. Uh, you know, are you woman enough to be my man? I've always loved that, that line, line in the song. But musically speaking, I, Ed's voice it just kind of has this it, it's in that weird space in between his baritone his growl and 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 that 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 really great clear um foundational you know melodic sound that he can produce with a song like nothing man or black it just sounds tinny and i don't know it it, it uh it, it's never resonated with me in a way that it does with a lot of other fans. I like the song. I never skip it or anything like that. If they play it live, I'm happy to hear it. But I think a lot of folks look at Hail Hail like it's one of the standout tracks on the album. I believe it was on the Greatest Hits album. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's not one of the greatest hits of the band, quite frankly. Uh, wow. it's, it's, I think it's a good song. Um, but... Send There's your nothing. hate mail to Paul yes. Gilliary. <laughs> it, it's, it, it, I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a stone. It's stone, Jeff, Mike, they're, they're all credited for the music. Uh, you know, Eddie wrote the lyrics, as we know. But the song has always just felt off to me. Really? It's always, yes. I, I, it's, um, it, it was successful. I mean, yes, you know, it was. It, it was, I think it was, uh, second single, here. I want to say. It's a second single. It reached number nine on the uh, Billboard charts for modern, modern rock. Um, but this particular song for me, when I listen to it, I feel as though Lucan produces that garage rock sound in a way that, that sounds new and interesting to me. Whereas Hail Hail, it's it exists in that and Habit as well. Both those songs exist in this bizarre space in between. The rock that they had done 
and it almost felt like an overcompensation to to mm. experiment in in a different way. Um, it's just the, the enunciation of it all the way through. It's just I don't know, man. You don't like the uh, obligation. No, it's it's it, there's a thrashing <laughs> syllable. Like there's a thrashing nature to it that just feels very dirty and and I feel like the lyrics just feel drunk to me. I don't know. <laughs> it's just it is a it's a loose song. It's, a, it's definitely too a loose, loose song. for me. I, I think when when, okay. when 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 they tighten things up, they really shine. Uh, when they when they it's a, it's a loose much, record though so wouldn't you expect it, that it, it is but there are there are songs on here which which i'll get to but i mean you look at a song like present tense great example of tightening things up right uh if you want to stay along the lines of rock i mean i feel like red mosquito uh does a far better job of what pale hail does in terms See, of i think like red mosquito is way looser but it's 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 loose but it, it, it's loose, but there, there's a tenor to his voice. I feel like... Oh, you have my Eddie. I, yeah, I see. exactly. Musically speaking, I mean, it It just feels... I don't know. It, 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 it's that garage rock sound that never... That I now can appreciate when I look back on it and, and re-listen to it. But it, the, the whole album I had difficulty with when I first heard it. Um, well... But like a lot of people You and my money, yes. But however, what, what I loved about the album was the experimentation. And that's not new for me. We talked about this, mm-hmm. whether it was Dance the Clairvoyance or Sleight of Hand. I mean, there's always something about Pearl Jam saying, we're going to go off the beaten path that Paul loves, which is why when I first heard No Code, Who You Are, In My Tree, those are the tracks that just blew me away. I was thinking, man, these, these are, I love this. I love, like, give me more of this. The, the hail, hail, and the, and the, and the habit, the, I didn't want more of that. You know See, I mean? I, I'm, the, I'm the reverse. I wanted yeah, I know more straight ahead rock and roll. Uh, I will tell you that my, my over under, and I was playing a lot of devil's advocate there just to kind of throw everybody off the, off the sniff there. Uh, I considered the hail hail um, purely because it is the most, for lack of a better word, popular song on the album. It's been played the most off of the record live. Uh, I mean, it's been a um, go-to commercial staple for David Letterman over the years, mm-hmm. um, but I did not choose hail hail. I chose Lucan. Interesting. Okay. Yes. yes. Tell uh, me why. Well, it, overrated. Luke. Overrated. It is the mm. second most played song, only to Hail Hail off of the record. Um, live speaking, of course. It's very simple. It's short. It's very beloved. Um, and I wonder why. It's a minute long. <laughs> it's a minute long. It's a minute long. The story behind it uh, is very much Ed. Um, I don't know how. I don't know how many people can really empathize with this story of a, of a, of a stalker. Of, of a, you're a famous person, you're being stalked, so you find solace at somebody else's house where you can be yourself. There, there's like eight percent of that story that I feel like is is something that people can relate to. Otherwise, the the song is completely unrelatable. And by the way, I should disclaim that I do enjoy the track a lot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this, is a, this is a tough exercise, so I'm, I'm, I gotta, I gotta pick something. Um, and it's one of those songs that rearranged is far better. Um, the, the slow down acoustic version from New York in 2010 Agreed. is much Agreed. better. Um, <clears throat> I almost look at it as filler. Um, I know it's only a minute long and it is fun, like I said, but 
I feel like it was just made to prove a point to Matt Lucan that they could write a short song. And that to me means between that and the, the theme of the song, the lyrics, it's more like a B side. And I'm not, I mean, I don't, I don't want to give things away as far as our retracting, which we'll, we'll do eventually. But as much as I do enjoy hearing it from time to time at concerts, and it's only a minute long, it's like, meh, like, What's the point? I don't know. Does it for for the amount of love that it gets at shows? I just I feel like people love it because it's a lot of yelling for a minute. What do you think? No, no good. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't think it's over. I I, I don't know. I, I never thought that song was held in a level of esteem that it it's could a second be highest rated. Shot off the record. I mean, people like the song. Yeah, they do. They do. That that's fair. It's fair. I'll give it to you. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I can see that. I, right. I, I think uh, if you presented the lyrics of Lucan, I wouldn't have high expectations for the can song. You and, and that? Yet, can, you, can you relate to that song at all? No, I can't relate to it, but I'm, I don't, I think that's kind of the whole point is that it's, the, and that's why it's so frenetic is that it, whereas with a song like Hail Hail, which has, you know, arguably some of the, the better lyrics Eddie's written yeah. in, in a lot of places. If you gave me those, those lyrics, and I read those lyrics, I'd be thinking, this is going to be one of the best songs I've ever written. I can't wait to hear this. And I just think the music disappoints. I think the vocal delivery disappoints for me. Um, I think the lyrics are what help hold it up, quite frankly. That mm, if the lyrical content wasn't as poignant and, and uh, as profound with, with lines that are as salient to the themes and motifs of this track as they are, I don't know how often I'd want to hear it. But Funny, the... the- the main riff of Hail Hail is one of my favorite progressions in the, in the catalog because it's not, it's, it feels like a weird time signature, but it's not the way that it's played. I've always appreciated that. I've always thought it was a really cool riff. But anyways, that's just me. Um, let's get into our underrated, which I found to be very difficult because I think the, especially now as a, as a 39 year old man in the year 2021, uh, I feel is an underrated album. So to, to try and pick a track that is underrated was difficult. Uh, I'm curious to see where you went with this. I mean, it, it is difficult. I, I think you could pick almost any song on the album. Yeah, and it would. There's a compelling argument for why it's underrated. I think for me, the most underrated song on the album, and it's a song I've, I've talked about a lot on here, is is around the bend. Um. Hmm. It, 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 there's, I mean, I, I was going to go with I'm Open, uh, which is a, is a track that I've actually progressively found to, and I found myself enjoying more and more uh, seemingly each year, each time I listen to the album. Um, uh, Red Mosquito is a song that has grown on me more and more. Smile has grown on me more and more. Uh, you, I've already said I, I adore who you, uh, who you are and In My Tree, but Around the Bend is a song that I loathed when I first heard this album, yeah. you know? And if you go and you look at the, the sales of this track, it's, it's it barely registers, at least on iTunes. And right. what I find so interesting about an album like this is, you know, Eddie just felt the need to challenge himself, saying to himself, I got to write a lullaby. I should write a lullaby. And then literally, the, the minute he had that thought, he went, he penned one. At the end of the day, he had written Around the Bend. 
but it, it really emanated from like a writing exercise, which is so funny because as a writer, you know, oftentimes to kind of break the block or to just experiment, just to kind of find new ways to pivot, you'll do little writing exercises like this, that they're the equivalent of just kind of new and different exercises that you might do in the gym when you feel like you're plateauing. And so Eddie does this, but he thinks to himself, well, wait a minute, you know, I can't just write a lullaby. I'm quoting him here, by the way, from an interview. Can't just write a lullaby because that's just too sweet. So just by changing a few words, I made it so if you listen to it one way, it was like a lullaby, like a father singing to his child, which is basically a song for Jack Irons to sing to his boy. Or it could be like a serial killer who had just eaten half of his, see, there, there's a nasty side. <laughs> In my head, I'm thinking, I never hear that side when I listen to that song. And I almost wish you hadn't even attempted to plant that seed so I could enjoy it for what it is or for what it meant to me. But that's the whole point, right? Is that it was this this conscientious attempt, but it came from a place of such insecurity on Ed's behalf. Why can't it just be a damn lullaby? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, who can't? Yeah. Now, the difference is the Ed that we hear on Lightning Bolt on Backspacer, on Gigaton, it is going to be just a lullaby. And he's at peace with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I love about Around the Bend was that it, if you choose to listen to it the way that it is, you, you get a glimpse of who Eddie's going to become. You, you, you get a, a little insight into the Eddie Vedder that we will see on a piano one day, uh, standing on stage with, with a couple of str- uh, you know strings behind him, uh, playing you know songs like "Just Breathe" in the end, and uh, and I just I've always found this track to be I shouldn't say I always found like I said I hated it when I first heard it because because I was young and and foolish and ignorant and naive and an idiot but <laughs> as I grew older and matured I began to really appreciate just how beautiful of a track that it is it's across the board and especially when I had children of my own you know uh, I think I've come to appreciate it more because of that so. By all accounts, I think it's it's highly underrated of a song. I, I don't think anybody wants to listen to this song. I mean, when was the last time they played this thing live? Probably uh, Ben Royal Hall, I think, is the last time they played Incorrect. it live. Incorrect. Incorrect. No. I, I will ask you, though, first, it, uh, when was the interview from that you read that quote about the serial killer? Uh, 2001. I th- it was the uh, 10 past 10 from Spin Magazine, I think. Okay. so I think uh, it was from that one. Well, when I watched the... Um, most recent free live stream from the 10 club and Pearl Jam uh, from Moline, Illinois. Moline, they played yeah. ten, uh, No Code in its entirety. Oh, they did. You're right about that. Okay. At the very end of playing Around the Bend, he says pretty much the same thing, that you could take it either way. And this is 2014. So I, I hadn't personally read that bef- that article before. So this is the first time I heard him ever say that. I thought it was pretty interesting because I had never listened to it in that way before. Uh, but to your point, Around the Band was last played July 17th, 2018. So on the last tour and very close to the end of the last tour. But it's only been played 14 times in 25 I mean, years. That's nuts, you know? And, and there's that, a song on that album that has been played less. Uh, let me guess. I'm open. There you go. By one. 13 Mankind times. has beaten I'm open. Mankind's been played 44 times. Wow. So there are, there are most of the songs on this record have not been played in triple digits. Only, yeah. only Hail Hail at 243. Off He Goes at 118. 
and Lucan at 229. I'm sorry, and present tense at 136. Everything else has been under 100 times played, and that's for an album's worth of songs 25 years old. Yeah, an album, by the way, that the band's current fan base reveres. Absolutely. Uh, well, I've got an under, underrated song here for you. Uh, it is Sometimes. Beautiful song. Love it. Yeah. You know, talk about, you know, like, and I almost juxtapose this with. I love how you went with the opener. I went with the closer on this one. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's a simple song, much like yeah, Lucan is also a simple song. Simple song, but it says a lot in the short amount of time. It is, it is quite literally the human condition in 73 words in two minutes and 41 seconds. It's a beautiful summary of what being human is in that amount of time, both from a story point of view and an emotional point of view, because you have like this small, meek, vulnerable kind of tone in his voice, and it builds to this strong, proud, vibrant tone. And then it's right right back to the quieter, you know, more vulnerable state for the very last line. And I've, I've always found this song to be very interesting because of that, because it, it's, it's the most succinct song in the catalog to me uh, where the theme is such a grand idea. I mean, how much more grander do you get than humanity and what it is to be human and to, and to think about your existence? And he manages to put all that together in so few words, especially considering the length of some of the of the song, lyrically speaking, as we get going. I mean, I've talked about seven o'clock a number of times. It's got 73 words in the first line. Uh, <laughs> but there's so many wordy songs <laughs> later on in the catalog. Um, and this one is just so tight and succinct, but it says so much. Um, and not just in the number of words that he says, but in how he sings them. Um, so I've always thought that sometimes it was such a great song in that sense. It's a great opener. Um, my favorite version of this song is The First Night in Inglewood in 1998. Um, it's still a lovely way to open a set, and it just it gets the whole show going. And both those nights back-to-back are just lovely. So Sometimes, for me, is my underrated song. Okay. Great choice. It, it, you know, that song was... I always wanted it. I thought it was going to really go somewhere towards the end. I mm. thought it was it was it was it, it, there was a crescendo coming, and then it just kind of peters off. And, and uh, they do that a lot. They do that in "Of the Girl." There's a lot of tracks where they 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 kind of uh, unthought known. Another great example. I think it's intentional. I know it, it's very much intentional. But they're one of the few bands that that seems to be able to do that in a way where it's because they don't. It's it's like a tease. They they don't ever take it where you're waiting for it to go. And we keep re-listening to those songs almost as though we were, were thinking it'll be different this time. We're still somehow satisfied, and yet it's not enough. And we keep, I don't know, it, yeah. it's always been such a fascinating just dynamic with these tracks. Well, I think we should now get to our lyric of the week. Paul, lyric of the week. Of course, it's coming from No Code. Of course. And it's who you are.
right. There you go. I've given you the last verse, the last five or so lines of who you are. What do you make of it? Um, it, it, it was an existential precursor to what I think I am. Mine will become this idea that, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you've got a part to play, but there's a choice here. And this idea that, and, and, and this is the issue that I think Eddie has with faith sometimes is that he, there seems to be a criticism against ideologies that suggest you don't have any choice, that, that things are predetermined and preset for you. And, and I think Eddie is very much somebody that is of the mindset that um, your life is yours and, and you have the opportunity to choose, you know, who you are, you are who, who you are. You get to make that decision. And at the end of the day, um, you're, there's a responsibility that comes with that. So I would say you've got a part. You know what I mean? It's that, 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 that it's, you have a part to play. It means that you have a responsibility to deliver those lines. You have a, despo- a responsibility to play that role in the, the, the greater scheme, the, the scheme, pardon me, of whatever this play that we call life is. So I've always felt the song to be a, a, a nice precursor to I Am Mine. I actually enjoy sometimes when I'll throw Pearl Jam mixes together, just random songs. I, I like putting these two songs actually either as bookends for an album or or somewhere like coupled together. Um, I, I just really enjoy the provocative nature and the way that it veers towards the existential. And, and, it, and it really asks those questions. You know, if, if you want to go purely down that road and talk Nietzsche or Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am. Okay, great. But if I think and therefore I am, what is the value of what I am? And is there an inherent responsibility to that? So there are these larger questions that I think are being posed. And, and there's some suggestion of answer that we weren't really necessarily getting in the types of questions that were being posed in 10 and on verses and even on vitality. And, and I think that you can see a natural progression happening in these albums as they mature as people due to the contextual circumstances of their surrounding environment as, as a band that's basically uh, growing up together through the supernova that was the beginning of their career. They weren't a band that, that you know, had an album and then the next one got bigger and then the next one got bigger. Their first album was an absolute supernova. Right. And then after then, it was just holding on and trying not to just explode. And that's, I feel like in a lot of ways, what they have been doing for years. So I really enjoyed this song as, as it's, it really is, I think, an articulation of the pivot point which is something I think you and I will talk about in a, in a later episode this month for the band, as they really started to kind of question uh, not only who they are as, as a band, but also who they are as people. And I think that was part of Jack's influence, just to bring it back around to the conversation that started this episode. You know, Jack just kind of grounding the band members and saying, hey, you know what? I'm a dude with Carpool Tunnel who has a son and, you know, I, I like to play and, and let's have some fun until it's not fun. And uh, that kind of reinforced the idea of, all right, well, I mean, I, this is not a slight on Dave, but I think that that's part of what was so refreshing to Eddie about working with Jack post Dave, 
because Dave was diametrically the total opposite of that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and that's not a judgment or a slight on Dave. Dave is who he is, you know, who you are. And, and it just, it, that's not what the band needed at the time. So. You said, um, I think therefore I am. Yeah. Uh, th- that, that phrase always got me because it, it, and I guess it depends on, on where you are in your headspace, but I think therefore I am. I, therefore I am what, well, what no, am it, I? It, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's you know, the, the French philosopher Descartes, this existential idea of, no, you exist. Because I can't course. think. I I am. I there, exist. Right? right, right, right. But but my my brain takes it the next step, and so I, I exist. But why? What's the worth of my existence? Like that's the uh, next see, that's, step. That 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 is yeah. That that's an you entirely different question. So which I I feel like there are many people who would hear the you are you are something you exist. Therefore, you know. Therefore, I am. I'm kind of working myself backwards here. Therefore, I am. Okay, so what? Therefore, I am what? What does that mean? What is the value of existing? And I think that's where this where this song goes. Um, and I, I think this is where Ed tackles this very weird existential issue of existence and being enough. Yeah. Um, everything in this world is is too often kind of go, go, go. Everything's very, especially in this city and in cities in general are just often very go, go, go. Um, and, and we never have time to really breathe. Uh, and moreover, I mean, I think we are too often living with the mindset that who we are isn't enough. So we're always seeking something to, to fulfill or to fill in a gap or, or to yeah. make or to improve upon ourselves when we might not have to improve on anything, but we, but we don't know that it's all in our heads. Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's really common to feel that way uh, today more than ever. I mean, how often do we look at how people under 30 are marketed to on social media? I mean, the amount of things that are kind of dropped into our laps through the algorithms of like, Hey, you should get this. Hey, you should check out that. Hey, you should check out. like, Oh, am I not doing enough to like donate? Am I not doing enough to like, yeah, it's almost as though, you know, you talked about value, like why, right? It, it, a lot of that is marketed in a way almost to define your identity, to, yeah. to, to, to essentially tell you who you're supposed to be and to, to, for you to feel judged for not being that ultimately. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's what I think this song does is, it, is it's trying to be the anchor point of saying, no, fuck all that. Uh, you are, you are what you are. You are who you are and you aren't this or that or something else. Um, and you know, so that's why you need this product or this service. No, that's, that's not it. Um, that's this song. And that's what this verse, especially is saying the last verse in the song, which I, I love that it's the last verse of the song, the last words that you hear that you are enough. You are who you are and that's fine. And the the stoplight line is great because it reminds me that we need to sometimes forcibly, intentionally pause to breathe and to remember to live in the moment. To you know, how many times are you are you stuck at a red light and you're pissed because you're you're gonna be late for something? It's like, and I've I'm this is me all the time. I hit every red light in the book the other day. Um, 
And I was just so annoyed. And it's like, what am I trying to rush to my destination for? I'm not actually going there to be there for a certain time. I'm just annoyed that I'm not there yet. But like, who cares? If I'm if I'm not late for anything, what does it matter if I'm not there at a certain time? As long as I get there safely. Um, and I think using that moment to breathe, to de-stress, to release yourself a little bit is super important because in those moments, you will find, you'll start kind of thinking in these backward circles where like, and you have these little existential moments where like, wait a minute, it's all, no, it's fine. It's fine. Like if I thought in that moment of me freaking out, I'm hitting all these red lights, like when I get home, it's not going to make a difference if it's now or three minutes from now. Like it's all yeah. the same. It's, 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 it's a silly example, but it's in the same world as why do I need that thing to be better than who I am? Is it What's better? Funny, I, What's I, better? I think you might've unearthed something here. The, 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 the fact that uh, who you are is actually uh, a Pearl Jam driving song in disguise. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, mean, I always thought that it was hanging out in the pantheon of crop duster, I am mine, unthought known, and all these other existential little ditties. He but uh, uh, apparently, it, you know, it, 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 it does. It, it's, it's the long lost sister of Rear View Mirror, and we had no idea. I mean, it, it could be. I mean, <laughs> just a little time before. And we're going to we... end up doing like a whole show on <laughs> Pearl Jam, like driving songs, car songs, and then a whole show on these existential little, you know, pontifications. Yeah, I don't know. the first episode will be Mar- Mario Andretti, and the second one is going to be <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell. There you go. And exactly. we're just going <laughs> to. So, I, I just really think that you know, we lose we lose the idea of who we are too often, and I think this song was just a reminder to, you know, find yourself and recognize that that is enough. Yeah. That who you are is completely fine. Don't worry about. The outside influences don't worry about your friends or your family or or whatever's being marketed at you. And they'll want to say marketed for you, but like personalize your ads. Go fuck yourself. I don't need to personalize ads. I don't need any ads. Relax. You know, it's it's what's being marketed at you because what they think you need to see or hear to better yourself or your life. No. You are who you are and you are fine the way it is, uh, the way that you are. So I think it's a lovely sentiment. Um, it's a definitely a stranger m- song musically because of Jack, but I think it's one of those songs. It's an interesting choice being the first single off of the album. And that was definitely intentional. Uh, but it, it, it sent, it sent a message. And I like that message being the first single off the album to say, Hey, we are who we are. This is how we choose to express it in this particular moment. How about that? And there's some confidence with that, and that's good. Have confidence in yourself, I think is what they're saying. Let's go to our live cut of the week. Ready to stand up! Live, live cut of the week. Paul, not a lot of choices when it comes to the no-code tour because they didn't tour very much. And so the options that we were given or that we that are currently available are minimal. So with that, where are we going? I think we're going to Deutschland. 
Oh, we're, we're going. We're going to Berlin, buddy. Back um, to Berlin. We're going back to Berlin. Um, Some of you longtime listeners are like, these motherfuckers love Germany. What's going on here? Uh, it, hey, I, w- what can I say? All I can tell you is that this particular show was outstanding. It really, it's it's bizarre. I mean, Eddie does a lot of rambling in between a lot of these songs, uh, but apparently, there's actually a lot of um, uh, hidden meaning behind some of these bizarre ramblings. I was on uh, the the if you go to the Pearl Jam boards on, on their website, there, there's a thread here called Berlin, Germany '96, weirdest Pearl Jam show ever, <laughs> and uh, in in one of the comments. One of the guys was saying, you know, the I am a donut line from from this one. I was just apparently say that, was yeah. a, a reference to, to Kennedy. But also, um, apparently, some of the weird, bizarre stuff that was happening before immortality, all this gibberish that he's saying, is from a, a Barnum musical. Really? A museum song? Yeah. Check check out the thread one of these days. It's called uh, Berlin, Germany, 1996. Weirdest Pearl Jam show ever. Uh None of these are my ideas, but I, you know, I didn't want to cite them on the show. And, and, and Maybe it's because it was on the radio so I, and he felt like he should just be weird on the radio. I don't know what he was doing, but they were tight and it was, it sounded great. And uh, this particular version of the song is just vintage Jack Irons. I mean, yeah. it's just, just, just to hear that the thump and, and those tribal beats coming in. It's really, really cool. And the guitar sounds are so on point too. Um, I, I love the little towards the beginning <laughs> they do just such a nice job of like kind of teasing you with it and at first you think oh it's a mistake then they do it like two or three more times you know and then you really oh no that that's i like it i like it i just think it's one of the, the best soundboard version recordings that you'll hear from this era so going with uh, berlin 96 was this a november 3rd i think november 3rd 1996 in berlin germany i don't know what to say so i'm just gonna say uh I am a donut.
Paul, do you consider yourself a donut? <laughs> what kind of donut <laughs> would you aren't be? Aren't we all? Aren't we glazed? You got it. Glazed is the only answer. Exactly. What 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 ass clown says non-glazed? Sprinkled. <laughs> Jesus. Non-glazed. My son powder would. sugared. I don't know. <laughs> that son of a bitch says says sprinkles all the time. We go to that donut place over there on uh, Moore Park. He's loving that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <This is> sprinkles. <laughs> yeah, we been actually. We we we. I took my daughter there for uh, National Donut Day. I'll yeah. never forget this. I'll keep this brief because nobody listening gives a crap. But it's fucking I took her there. It is. I, I brought her there for, she goes, she must have been like four at the time. She goes, Daddy, it's National Donut Day. I said, oh, is it now? Well, How does we, she need to go, we need to go get donuts. It was on one of those little cat, like uh, highlight magazine calendars. Oh, yeah, sure. So I said, We're, we have to go get donuts. So I take her. She's super excited, right? Bring her to the donut shop. She's looking around. There's a poster in the donut shop. It says, it's National Donut Day. Pointing to it. Took a little, little, little cameo photo. And then um, sat her down, ordered her donut. We sat down, we shared that, and then it was done. And I said, uh, "All right, did you like that?" And she said, "What do, what do we do now?" I said, "Well, that's it, baby girl. That's that's it's National Donut Day. We had our donut." And she, there's this this lull, <laughs> and just this this sigh, this drooping chin. And that's she it? Looks, uh, she looks up at me. She goes, "I don't like National Donut." <laughs> 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 oh man, <laughs> nothing, nothing like just you know, it's just disappointment. It's like, what, what do you, what do you want me to do? What do you want to Kids ride Matterhorn right now? What the heck? They Space Mountain's you. closed. Eat your donut. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, uh, Ed was a donut before this song started, as you just heard. Right, and uh, I think you're right. I mean, again, I, I joke about it, but there's so few really good sounding recordings from this uh, era. I mean, we've got this. We've got Hamburg. I think Hartford. Hint, hint, is vault re- release. Hint, hint. Oh, Jesus. We've already had a show on this, but we should come back to it. Um, Hartford is great. Uh, first time they ever played Hartford is that that is soundboard quality. There are Charlotte, North Carolina, and Randall's Island had some decent recordings. They're not great, yeah. but they're decent. And they're in Randall's Island, especially, is an incredible show historically. So it's worth kind of getting through. But if you're looking for the combination of how it sounded, and uh, in the performance, it's hard not to go past Berlin. Um, and it's exactly how you wanted to sound if you wanted to hear a live version of this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned yeah. Jack is absolutely on point. Uh, and it, I think that's the backbone of this, right? If he's not on point, and, and even Matt to this day, if, if that drum beat isn't on point, the song falls away. Yeah. Uh, and so that was fantastic. And I think the way that it resolved at the end is perfect. Uh, unlike the album where it kind of fades away, this resolved in a very lovely way. Uh, I think Stone was to credit for that. But um, great choice. Berlin, Germany, 96. Whenever I pick no code songs, I always assume we're going there. But um, lovely, nonetheless. There you go. Uh, the first of probably a couple of no code centric so- uh, songs, episodes here in the month of September um, to honor our. our one of the albums that we should honor a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. September. Come hang. Come talk Sep- no code September. with us. We are um, just a couple of weeks away from See Here Now. I know our friends over at Lab and Four Legs are doing a lot of special things around that. Um, we will speak a little bit about it the week before. And then the following week is Ohana. Oh, baby, it's finally here, Paul. And the weekend after, the encore session... Oh, baby, 
Paul and I will be in attendance with T-shirts on our backs. Exactly. It's amazing. T-shirts. It feels real again, Paul. It's feeling real. It will. It will. Well, until it's, we... It, we're we're going to have to try not to dedicate an entire month's worth of episode to, to that one show. I mean, I We will be tempted. I assume we'll be talking about Ohana for the rest of the calendar year. <laughs> Is that wrong? It's, it's, we're going to interview everybody who went there. Yeah, exactly. If you've been to Ohana, you're going to come on the show and talk about it. No. Uh, well, until next week when we talk probably a little bit more about No Code. Uh, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. Yeah.